Well, good morning, Sedaris. Um, what I know has been a hard week um, for me, and I'm sure for you as well. We just want to say thanks for joining us, and, and thanks for entering into this time of teaching. As Ryan said, uh, we as a church and, and us as pastors, uh, we just want to say that uh, we, along with you, are um, uh, devastated, appalled at the, the state of our country. We condemn the killing and murder of George Floyd. We condemn the continued systemic racism and injustice in our country towards black and brown people. Um, we acknowledge that uh, we need to do more, that uh, uh, myself being a white man, I need to do more, uh, but we also acknowledge our ignorance and our need to grow and to learn and to listen. And, and I hope I sent an email out um, on Wednesday of this last week. I, I, I hope you had a chance to read that. If you didn't, go back and read that. We really uh, lay out a lot of um, what we do know, um, which is not a lot, and sort of our plan to learn and grow as a community. I know I'm committing myself to continuing to learn and grow on this issue. This is not the first time that this has happened, and so I've done learning in the past, but I need my learning to be continual and constant rather than fluctuating with uh, the ebbs and flows of um, police brutality as that comes up in the news. And so I, I want to commit to helping us lead um, the way in learning and listening. And so I, I shared some of the ways that we plan to do that, including starting a book club, um, not, not this week, but the following week, and then once a week sharing uh, just one resource. We, we could share a bunch all at once, but uh, we really think that this sort of long-term approach to learning and listening, um, rather than just getting loud when the culture gets loud, but, but learning to listen, because this is going to be a long process that we as the church can hopefully lean into and hopefully in some ways lead forward. So um, part of that plan, I think, and, and the place to start is by uh, learning to listen to our brothers and si uh, sisters that are African-American um, by listening to them. And I think it's important to listen to our brothers and sisters, our siblings in the family of God who um, are black, who can talk about this issue from personal experience. And I think it's important to listen to Christian voices in this, people who are gospel-informed. So um, there's lots of good things out there, but we also need to make sure we're listening uh, to our brothers and sisters on this issue. Um, so we confess, I confess blind spots. I confess that I have a lack of words. I confess that I'm still in process myself. Uh, but I, what I also realize is that I can't wait to, to speak on this issue. Uh, I went back and forth um, this week as to, you know, the timing. Is it right to stand up and, and, and speak now? Um, and, and to continue to preach the gospel, um, went back and forth with my good pastor friend, Jeff Neuschwander, at our sister church up on, uh, in the Central District. Uh, and he had done an interview with um, Harvey Drake, who's a, a great African-American pastor here in the city at Emerald City Bible. And um, we thought about showing that, but me and Jeff actually talked. And, and we both decided that um, even though we feel unprepared, even though this feels uh, challenging and, and like we don't have the words, um, we still stand up and speak. And so decided to, 
to preach from the Word of God today, when you don't feel like you have the words to, to understand or to express um, uh, the feelings in your heart like, like I do now, uh, the place to turn is to the Word of God. When you don't have the words, God gives you His words through His book. And so uh, we will do what we do every week at Sedaris. We'll teach through the Bible, and we'll ask God to, to reveal to us how his word can give us words in this moment. And I think, uh, as always, the word of God does, it surprises you at just how much it speaks to all that we go through and in and out of every season. So that's my hope this morning, um, is that even though um, I don't have the words, I, I, I promise to, to speak to this issue from the Word of God. I hope not to give pat answers. I, I know I can't say everything that I feel in my heart, and I know that even everything I feel in my heart is, is, is not perfect, that I, too, God is refining me. And so um, I just pray for um, the Lord to speak and move through my words. Um, so let's just ask Him to be with us in this time of teaching. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, We need you now. We need you to open the eyes of our heart, open up our minds, renew our minds through the teaching of your word, God. Um, I I, I know I'm an imperfect vessel of of this message of reconciliation, but I also know that you can speak through me. So I pray, as I do often, God, that anything that is is not from you, uh, that I speak, might just go in one ear and out the other, God, that... um, uh, that my words don't get in the way of what you're doing and trying to do, God, but, but we do want to stand up and say something because we know that your heart breaks for the brokenhearted and we want to weep with those who weep. Um, we want to understand um, as much as we can. So help us to understand, God, and help us to then take that understanding and put it into action in the world, God. Give us guidance. Each of us uh, will get unique guidance from you, God. So give us the unique guidance and help us. Give us courage to act upon that as we uh, determine how to move forward in these um, such such hard, challenging times. So we pray uh, that your spirit would stir in us, that you'd use your word to teach us and to, to mold us into the image of your son, Jesus. And we ask it in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to continue to preach through the teachings of Peter. Uh, Jesus called Peter the rock. And so I, I do think that um, he had a special place in God's plan to give us strength and courage in moments like this uh, where we feel tossed to and fro. So let's see what the rock Peter has to say to us. And then um, what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll teach what this passage is teaching generally about gospel principles. And then I will apply or, or take that gospel wisdom and, and, and insert it into these, these, these moments that we're going through now. And then I'll finish by hopefully giving us some real takeaways, some real things to be thinking about how this word can begin to transform our hearts to look more like the heart of Jesus, which is a heart of reconciliation a heart of justice, a heart of hope. So uh, that's what we'll do. So 
Um, you, you stick with me, pray with me that God speaks through this time. So let me just read our passage. We're at the very beginning now of Second Peter. We just finished First Peter. First Peter is addressed uh, to the same churches that Second Peter is addressed to. It's a few years later. The, the first letter that Peter writes to this group of churches in uh, what's modern day Turkey. Um, and, the, and the letter would have been passed around. The first letter was really a, how do you persevere through uh, suffering and persecution. And then the second letter is really uh, written because there was some false teachers that had come into these communities and were teaching a separate gospel, a different gospel. They were claiming to have some wisdom that um, was different wisdom. And this wisdom uh, was leading people to believe that they didn't need to lead, lead a life of virtue or a life of godliness, a life of righteousness. And so they um, were kind of teaching this very lax uh, way of following Jesus. And Peter's saying, that's not how the gospel works. That's not how the gospel works. And, and, and so he goes and he writes this letter. And so uh, we'll spend the next several weeks going through this. But this first message is really the introduction. And it's a powerful word for us about just the power of the gospel. So let me read the first four verses of Second Peter. If you've got a Bible, you can read along with me. We'll put it on the screen here for you. Peter writes this to his brothers and sisters in the faith. He writes this to you and me, too. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me just pause there. This is such a profound statement. I think, I think it even has... A message for us now. The gospel of Jesus Christ puts everyone on equal standing. This is Peter, the one who Jesus called the rock, the one who built the first church in Jerusalem. He is an apostle. He walked with Jesus. He was in its inner circle, as we'll see later in, in, in the book. He saw Jesus transfigured in his full glory, and he was one of only uh, three that got to see that. And Peter's saying, you, each and every one of you Christians, you are on equal standing with me. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of equal standing. And Peter reminds people that it's so, that's such a precious word. Verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This idea of knowledge will be so important, you'll see in just a second. Now to the verses that we'll focus on today. Verses 3 and 4. Peter's reminding them of how they got to where they are. He says this, His, that's God's, divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, that's Jesus Christ, who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Now from there, Peter will go on, and this is important. He'll go on to say, because of this, now live a virtuous life. So we'll talk about that next week. 
But in verses 5 to 11, he, he shows us how because this is true, because you, you see the language here. These are all things that God has done for us. God takes the initiative. Jesus takes the initiative. God grants us. Jesus calls us. Jesus died for us. Jesus saves us. He's taken the initiative to help us escape from the corruption of the world. And then Peter will go on. Because of that, now work out your salvation through living a life of virtue and self-control growing in knowledge and godliness and brotherly affection and love. So we'll talk about all those details and what those details mean next week. So that'll be a really fun time as well. But I just want you um, to know that that's where he's going. Even though God has already done these things for us, he's taken the initiative, he's granted these things to us, we then participate in them by working them out in the world. So important for us to hear that today. We participate by working them out in the Lord. So I want you to hear what what I want to spend the most time talking about today. At the very uh, end, it, it talks about having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. How? It's a big question for today. How do we escape? How do we resolve the deep moral corruption of our world? Peter's going to tell us how to do that. He's going to tell us how God plans to do that. How do we escape? And and I don't mean just like run away from it. How do we resolve the deep moral corruption of our world? It is so clear. I've read so much. There is deep moral corruption in our land. We can't hide from that. We cannot deny it. We have to understand it. We have to confess it. And Peter's going to tell us how we can resolve it. How we can resolve it. So that's what I want to try to answer today. How do we resolve this? Now, to resolve it, we have to understand where it comes from. Where does the corruption come from? So again, I, I'm, saying, I'm going to talk about it generally, and then I'm going to talk about specifically the corruption that we see and feel so deeply right now. So let me first just talk about it generally and God's general plan for all corruption. Um, what's interesting, if you look back here at, at, at the Bible, um, at least in the ESV translation, um, it says, in verse uh, four, having escaped the, from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, as you know, uh, the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Greek and we translate it to English. And uh, translators will, uh, will, will translate actually what the Greek word for desire doesn't have the modifier sinful. It literally just would read um, the corruption that is in the world because of desire. Now, now we add sinful desire because we're trying uh, to differentiate between good desire and bad desire. But, But I think it's pretty profound to just acknowledge the fact that desire leads to corruption. There's good desire, but when desire becomes unbridled, it leads to corruption. All I got to do is go back to the Garden of Eden and, and the desire 
of Adam and Eve and they saw the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of evil, they saw it. That desire wasn't bad. The desire to have knowledge of good and evil, the desire to see the beauty of God's creation, that desire is not bad. But when it became unbridled and they couldn't control it, it actually took them captive. That's what Peter's talking about. So translators put in sinful desire because ultimately sin is unbridled desire. But I think it's so important. Let me just explain to you. Um, In order to procreate, you need to have a sex drive or sexual desire. So sexual desire is good. But when sexual desire becomes unbridled, it leads to sexual immorality and corruption of the body. You see? So planting fields because you have a hunger drive is not bad desire. It leads to the ability to feed your family. But if your hunger drive becomes unbridled, it leads to gluttony and overconsumption. And it controls you. You see this? Um, I have a silly example of this. Before as a pastor, uh, many of you know this, I worked in public accounting. And and it's great to work in public accounting. Public accounting is great. But um, if you know my story, God very dramatically uh, called me out of that and gave me a mission to help people consider Jesus. You could read about that story on our website if you don't know the story. Um, but I wrestled with God for about a year and a half after getting what was such a clear supernatural calling. I didn't want to leave because I had a desire in me that was controlling me. And my desire was for financial security and luxury. Um, in fact, I grew up water skiing, competitive water skiing. My family always competitive water skied. And again, the desire to have a boat is not bad, but, but it had taken this place in my mind that if I just had a boat so that I could do something that I loved, uh, then my life would be complete or fulfilled. And, and that is an ungodly desire. Um, when the desire drives your decision making, do you see what I'm saying? So it's not a bad desire to have a boat. It's not wrong to have a boat. But when the desire for that is the thing that drives you, the thing that you revolve around, the thing that helps you make your decisions, God said that that leads to sin. That leads to corruption. And so I really had a real battle with, with giving up on everything that I had done to put myself in that place to get that desire of my heart. Uh, and by God's grace, I was able to escape that desire so that it no longer controlled me. Now, I still hope one day to have a boat. Nothing wrong with having a boat. Um, and so um, I might still get the desire of my heart, but it no longer controls me. It no longer corrupts me. So you see, this is what he's saying. The desire is not in itself evil, but when uncontrolled, when unbridled, it, it does always lead to corruption. See what I'm saying? Okay. And so if that desire leads to corruption, and that corruption corrupts the whole world, what then does, does Peter say as to how to escape that desire? Here's what he says. Go back up to verse 3. God's divine power 
has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Okay. So now think about the corruption, just generally all the corruption in your own life, in the world, okay? Peter's saying that you need divine power to escape that corruption that sinful desire causes. Now, this does not mean, if we just just real quickly hop back in um, to, to corruption that we see in our own country, this does not mean that God doesn't also use things like government systems, laws, policies, programs in order to eliminate or curb corruption. He definitely does. There's, there's several passages in, is in the New Testament. We talked about one in 1 Peter. You can look in Romans. God uses those things to curb evil and corruption in our land. But Peter's saying here that ultimately to escape it entirely in order that it no longer drags you down with it, we need divine power. To fully escape corruption of the world, to uncorrupt yourself, you need, and society needs, and civilization needs, God's divine power, which leads to life and godliness. Now, how does that divine power come then? It's a great question. How do, we, how do we access the divine power that helps us to escape and, and, and help our society escape corruption? Peter tells us, look at this, through, we're still in verse 3, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellency. Who's the him? It's Jesus Christ. That when we have knowledge of him, and who he is, and what he does, and his glory and moral excellency, we are able to access divine power. And really what Peter's talking about here is when we came to know him in a trusting uh, covenantal relationship, meaning uh, not just knowing things about Jesus, but when we came to know him and put our trust in him, now God sends his spirit so that we might have that divine power. When we're connected to Jesus through knowledge of him, we have access to power. And I'd even add, the more we know about him, the more that relationship is is fine-tuned and grows um, in trust and commitment, the more power we have to escape the corruption of the world and to grow towards his glory and excellencies, as we'll see in a second. So then it goes on to say, verse four then, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. By which, now what is he referring to? He's saying, he's saying his glory and excellencies are the thing um, that allows him to grant to us precious and very great promises, okay? So, so now ask yourself the question, 
Jesus, uh, in his great love for us, has promised things to us. And when we gain knowledge of those promises, that's part of the way then we connect to his power. So what are his promises? Okay. So in order to escape the corruption of the world, we grow in personal and committing knowledge of Christ by taking hold of his promises, which are very great. His finished work, the cross and the resurrection, and we take hold of these promises that he has called us to. What are those promises? Well, there are promises that in the end, we will fully escape the corruption, meaning that corruption won't last forever. That's one of the promises of God. Peter will talk about that in chapter three of this letter. You can go read ahead if you want. But he's saying God is going to refine and burn away the corruption of this world one day. It will not last forever. That's a great, very great promise. I hope hope that ministers to your soul right now, that that the things that you see and the pain that you hear and the pain that you feel yourself, that you know that God will burn that away. In the end, you will escape if you're connected to him. It will not drag you down in the end. And as we're about to read in a second, it says, so that through them, through these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, what's he mean by this? This is another promise. Basically, he's not talking about you'll become gods. No, we don't believe that. Christians don't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that we become gods. It means that we get to become like God. Just as we were created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, we get to return to that image when, we're, when, when the corruption in our heart is removed, we get to partake again in the moral excellencies of God. That's what it means, to be like God. We, don't get to be, we, we are not gods. We are not ontologically like God. We are not the same as God in essence and nature, but we get to be like him in, in morality by being excellent like he is excellent. So that's one of the great promises, that we get to partake in his righteousness through connection with Jesus. And then third, um, uh, and you see this again and again in 1 Peter. Um, Look at this. Just look in verse 11 of chapter 1. Verse 11 of chapter 1 says this. For in this way there will... In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? So when when God cleanses the world, that's one very great promise of corruption and unrighteousness and godlessness and immorality. When he cleanses the world of that, he will grant you entrance into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now turn with me, flip with me. What is that kingdom like? Uh, Peter talks about it again later in his letter. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 13 says this. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Friends, if your heart does not beat for righteousness in our land, and justice in our land, then you do not understand the heart of God and the plan of God and the promise of God. 
God is preparing and will bring, when Jesus comes again, a new kingdom in which righteousness dwells. And so I just want to say this. So, so um, whether you decide to protest or not, when you see the protest for righteousness and justice in our land, that is a justice and a righteousness that is rooted in eternity. Meaning that that longing, whether people, most people don't know where it comes from, but that longing for justice and righteousness, that is the longing that God has placed there. He's placed eternity in the heart of man. And so you see it coming out right now in people that would denounce Jesus and denounce his kingdom, but they're longing for a good thing. And you got to make sure you're longing for that thing too. Because the eternal kingdom of Jesus will be one in which righteousness dwells. So we need to fight for that now because that's the heart of God. Okay? Now I'm not saying that you can get that entrance into that kingdom apart from Jesus. You cannot. That's one of the things that breaks my heart when I see people long for that kingdom of Jesus and yet refuse to consider Jesus. It breaks my heart because I know that it's Jesus that grants access. It's Jesus that won salvation. It's Jesus that rescues us from corruption. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we keep preaching the gospel. That's why we keep preaching Jesus and helping people to consider Jesus because we know the thing that they long for most, they cannot get apart from the divine power that comes from a knowledge of Jesus Christ. But it's a good longing and we should long for it as much as the world around us. Okay, so there is corruption in the world that is because of desire, unbridled and uncontrolled and uncontained, and it takes hold of us, and we can't escape it fully without the divine power that comes from the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and in the resurrection and the sending of the Spirit. And that knowledge is filled with promises so that when we gain that knowledge, again, look at, look at verse 4, so that through them, that is, through the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. So when you live your life hoping for the things that Jesus promises, it allows you to tap into his divine character, his moral excellencies. And as Peter will say from verses 5 to 11, you then live out those moral excellencies in the world. Talk about that next week. This is God's plan for resolving corruption in the world. So what wisdom is there in this passage then for today's struggle? Today's struggle... At systemic racism, systemic injustice, police brutality, dehumanization of, of fellow human beings, the, the unreconciled race issue in our country. What does it say to us? Well, the first thing I think it, it says to us is that we have to do the hard work of remembering how this corruption entered 
into our nation. It entered a long time ago, 400 years ago. And those living in the colonies, they had a good desire to build a life for their family, to build a nation. But this desire took control of them. This desire became unbridled. This desire made their morality subject. And they lost their way. And they lost their godliness. And what was born, both in America and in Europe, was the African slave trade. That is the original corruption when it comes to race in our nation. Racism is not actually the original sin of our country. Unbridled desire for wealth, for power, for influence. That is the unbridled desire. And it led to us convincing ourselves, justifying the taking of another human being from their land and using them in order to gain the desire of our heart. Racism is just the means by which we justified our unbridled desire. By dehumanizing those who carried the Imago Dei, the image of God, just as much as, uh, as those colonists did, the, 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 the Africans who were brought to America, they carried the very image of God. And so not only were these human beings from Africa stripped of their divine dignity by slavery, but also the divine dignity and divine nature and the moral excellencies of God were stripped from those who gave in to their desire. Those who bought slaves and kept slaves to, to varying degrees, but all of them were losing. The image of God in them was being corrupted and decaying because they let desire drive them. And this happened for hundreds and hundreds of years. So you have to understand the depth of this corruption that came from desire. And then generation after generation was born into this corruption. It was baked into the system. It was baked into people when they were born at varying degrees. Some entered in then to that corruption willingly. Others just unwillingly were, were just born into this corruption. And even when slavery was finally abolished, you know what didn't, wasn't abolished? Corrupt desire. It still ruled the day. And then people that were corrupted by that original sin just continued to find new forms of oppression 
They found new names and language for injustice. They found new ways of justifying the continuation of a corrupt system that was unjust, that was filled with racism. We justified it. If you've never seen the documentary called The 13th, it's on Netflix. You should watch it. I watched it this week. It's tragic. But it opens your eyes to the depth of this corruption that comes through desire, unbridled and unchanged by the power of God through Jesus Christ. So we need to be honest. And we need to say that if desire leads to corruption, maybe even for us, I've been so convicted by this, this, the, uh, by this this week, that even though I might think that I'm separate from that desire that ultimately led to slavery or led um, to uh, separation um, of, of the races and the Jim Crow era, um, even if I might not be personally um, impacted by continued racial injustice and um, perpetuating the system in our prisons and just in our justice system, even if I might not have direct contact with that, I still have to search my heart and ask, is there some desire in me that is keeping me from actually pursuing the justice that God desires? From partaking in the divine nature of God's moral excellency. Is something holding me back? It's going to be hard to find for most of us, but it might be there. And one of the things that I thought of is, am I just using words like, or feelings like fear or safety or wanting the best for my family? Am I just using that stuff as a synonym for what really is desire? And what's that desire? The desire to maintain the privilege, the status, the security that I have. Is that really my sinful desire? To keep what I have as a white man who has so much privilege, who grew up with so much privilege, I have to ask myself that hard question. Am I just hiding the desire that's adding to the corruption? Have I been calling something ungodly, godly? There's so much that I, there's so much to say, but I, I want you to know that we are living in a corrupt world that is so broken, that has so many layers and generations and centuries of sinful desire, which led to decay, that it's hard to even see. So we must look at it and stare at it and acknowledge what we're a part of.
and then seek and, 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 and ask how can we be a part of fixing it. All the while knowing that we need help from God. So, so let me just move now into some, some applications. So yes, we need new systems. We need new laws. But most of all, or, or maybe not most of all, but, but definitely priority number one must be, at least for myself personally, at least for myself personally, must be asking God to cleanse my heart of all ungodly desire, even if I've couched that desire in other language, like fear or safety or, or caring for my family. I need divine power to do that cleansing. So, so let me give you three things to apply this text to your own life. How does that power come to us? First, Peter says, salvation and godliness come through knowledge of Jesus Christ, especially, especially the cross of Christ. So I, I want to show you, he's not the only one that said this. Um, the apostle Paul says something very similar. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says this. And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know, knowledge, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was writing with you in weakness and in fear with much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and, the, and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Very similar message. He's saying, I came to know nothing except Christ and Christ crucified. Okay. The centrality of the cross is so important in this work of removing corruption and seeking godliness. So, so thinking of the cross, thinking of the cross of, uh, the cross of Christ, I want you to think about it now. When you look at the cross and you see Jesus there hanging on the cross, what you should realize is the magnitude of the corruption of God's world, the sheer magnitude of it, that it took God coming in the flesh and dying in our place to remove the corruption. I mean, our mind can't get around that idea that God, the God of the universe, came and died in our place. The magnitude of, of the corruption led to the magnitude of the sacrifice. Jesus had to die to fix the corruption problem. It is deep, my friends. Now, thinking of the cross then and seeking knowledge of the cross of Christ, as we fix our eyes on the cross and we see Jesus there, let it expose us. Because he didn't just die for general corruption. He died for the corruption of you and me, 
for my heart, my, my corrupt heart. He died for me. And so I can't just say, yes, there's general um, racism in the land. I have to say, God, expose my heart. So I look to the cross. I say, expose my heart. Show me my bias. Show me my sinful prejudice. Uh, show me my desire for maintaining what I have over love for my brother. Show me. And I do that by staring at the cross, fixing my eyes on Jesus. Let him expose you so that you can confess your sin. Each of us has to do that. And when you see your sin, and when you see America's sin, and when you see our society's sin, just know that Jesus died already for it. He already died for it. He's made you free already, and so you must live in that freedom from that sin and speak about the corruption free from that sin. I think for me, sometimes I feel so much shame in in the ways that I might unknowingly participate in it that I don't speak up, and that's because I'm not trusting in the finished work of Christ. So I cannot let what let shame that is not of the Lord keep me from speaking about the injustice and the corruption because it's real. But Jesus already died and he already cleansed and paid the penalty for that. I don't have to pay the penalty for it again and again so I can speak about it because I know I'm free in Christ. And then finally, when we look to the cross and we have knowledge of Jesus and the cross, we realize that we're all as Peter said, on equal standing at the foot of the cross. Paul says this, Peter says, everyone says this, at the foot of the cross, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. There is no black and white. Everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. Now that doesn't erase the distinctions, okay? We're not colorblind, but uh, we're sin blind because at the foot of the cross for all who have, have known Jesus and been converted by his spirit, we know that we're all equal in God's eyes. And that's a beautiful truth. We are all one in Jesus. We are one family. The gospel teaches us how that is. And it's through the knowledge of Jesus Christ and what he's done. So that's the first thing. Salvation and godliness comes through knowledge of Jesus Christ. We must never forget that. We must never keep him out of the equation in escaping corruption. Now, the second thing is we have to remember that uh, escaping is not something that just happens once. It's an active, urgent, diligent process. So that's why Peter's going to go into verses 5 through 11 talking about how do we do this. And, and so we have to understand that escaping corruption means growing in righteousness and godliness, uh, particularly speaking to this issue in the area of racial reconciliation. You have to keep working at it. You have to keep growing at it. You have to keep exposing your heart. You have to keep confessing your sin. You have to keep learning about how deep the corruption is and the experience of the African-American community. You have to learn all of that and grow in that. That is what it means to be like Christ, to take on and partake in his divine nature. You are freed from it in the sense that Jesus has removed your chains. So that desire that led to the corruption, it no longer holds you in the way it once did. But you need to be sure not to add to the corruption. You need to be sure 
to add godliness to our world. You need to be righteous by partaking in God's moral and ethical excellency, seeking justice and reconciliation at a personal cost to yourself. That's what Jesus taught us. What is, what is the moral excellency of Jesus? That he pursued justice and reconciliation at the deepest personal cost to himself. That's what it means to partake in the divine nature. So we must escape, it's constant, ongoing escaping of this corruption through active, diligent work. And three, um, we can only be like God, partakers in his divine excellency, by absorbing his promises into our core. So primarily, um, this promise, like I said, is Jesus coming back again to erase all corruption, to build a kingdom of righteousness with total equality and peace. And if you don't believe this promise at your core, one of two things is going to happen. First, you will accept corruption as normative and you won't war against it. If you don't believe this promise that God's kingdom is free from corruption, free from injustice, free from racism, you will just begin to accept the way things are and you won't war against it. The other thing that can happen if you don't believe his promise of his future kingdom and his coming again is this. You will become so frustrated that corruption isn't going away fully now, that you will take vengeance into your own hands. And God says, vengeance is mine. And so both of those things can happen. If you don't believe the promise that Jesus is coming back and that his kingdom is a kingdom of pure justice, pure equality, where every tongue, tribe, nation and race live in harmony and peace, worshiping and bringing their gifts to God. One of those two things will happen to you. One of those two things. And so I think that's all I have to say right now on this issue, in this moment. It won't be the last time I speak on this. But I think that's all I've got to say right now. Would you pray with me? Father, take these words that I've spoken, use them as you may. God, if I've said anything that is not in line with your heart for justice and peace and reconciliation, God, just strike it from the record now. God, we pray that people would grow in their knowledge of your son, Jesus. That they'd see the work that he did to restore the hearts of man and woman in every age across the world. From every tongue, tribe, nation, race, ethnicity. God, that you would see that he's doing that work. And that when we connect to him and surrender our desire to his desire, he can begin to Help us resolve the corruption in our own hearts and resolve the corruption in our own societies. God, would you bring heaven to earth? Jesus, would you come back 
and restore shalom? God, would you give us the strength to pursue your moral excellency? God, would you give us voice to bring to light corruption and evil desire and the sin of our nation and the way forward to peace and reconciliation? We ask this boldly, humbly, knowing we cannot do it alone. We need you, Jesus. We need you in our church. We need you in our city. We need you in our nation. Come, Jesus, come. Amen.